Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I want to invite you this morning to, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, if you would turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, the New Testament book of Romans chapter 11. It's been a while since we've been in the New Testament. We spent the summer in Psalms, and then we went straight into the Old Testament book of Jonah uh, for a series through Jonah. And I don't know about you, but I'm almost kind of sad that we're uh, that we're sailing on from Jonah. Get it? That was my last pun. I promise uh, that we're sailing on from Jonah. But uh, I, I really enjoyed. Pre- Preaching through the book of Jonah, and whether you enjoyed going through it with me, I really enjoyed it because I personally needed it myself, because it was good for me to dive deeper into the relentless and um, almost, like the song says, almost the reckless grace of God, that he gives grace to people sometimes that we don't understand, because we look at them and we think, man, they don't deserve it. There were so many times through the book of Jonah, I looked at Jonah, and I'm like, man, this guy doesn't deserve the grace that God is giving. We definitely know that that Nineveh, after being so brutal and so horrible to the people of God, we would look at them and say, they don't deserve the grace of God, but that's the beauty of grace. When we get it, none of us deserve it. That's what makes it grace. We don't deserve it, and that's what makes it so beautiful. But let me ask you this. As, we, as we've, we've wrapped up Jonah and we've put a bow on it and everything, is anybody else left a little bit disappointed by how the book ended, by how the story ended? I mean, we're kind of left like going, okay, where's verse number 12, right? Because it's almost like it's just left like this open-ended. I, we don't know what happened with Jonah, um, but when we leave him, we do know a couple things. He's like white, hot, angry at God, right? And he is to the point where he is actually suicidal because he's so disappointed disillusioned with the grace of God. Now get that. God's man is so disillusioned with God's miraculous grace that he doesn't want to live, that he doesn't want to live anymore. Now that's a guy who's got his priorities out of whack. I I don't know about you, but his priorities are just messed up. I mean, think about it. Jonah had witnessed firsthand the matchless power and the grace of God on his own in his life many times. He saw God show mercy to pagan sailors. Um, He saw God show grace and mercy to a wicked city that was bent against God and his people. Yet at the end of it all, he is angry with God simply because he disagreed with God on who he should show grace to. Does that sound familiar? You say, we, we would sit here and say, no, 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 especially, especially Christians in a church on Sunday morning. No, God should show grace to everybody, but is that the way we honestly live our lives? See, his reaction is definitely not something that you would expect from a prophet, a prophet, a prophet who is dedicated to following God and to being an ambassador of his kingdom, which by the way, that is what we all are. We are ambassadors of his kingdom. The question is, what should Jonah's reaction really have been? If you were Jonah, and you were sitting up on the hill of that city, and you were looking down, and you were seeing God bless that city, and they're seeing revival come to that city, how should you have reacted to that? We would like to look at it and say, oh man, I would have been happy. I would have been ecstatic. I would have been excited about that. I would like to think that I would have been happy to see God's goodness poured out on people who didn't deserve it. And it's kind of like the reaction that Paul has in the book of Romans chapter 11. I know you're wondering, how in the world does Jonah tie in with this? Well, Jonah and Paul, in some ways, are kind of alike, and they're kind of similar. Both of them were men that God had chosen to kind of be his voice. Now, God was, Jonah, God was Jonah's voice uh, in the Old Testament days of the prophets. Now, Paul was, God's, Paul was God's voice in the New Testament age when men spoke through writing and were, uh, were like convicted of the Spirit and led by the 
the Spirit to write books of the Bible. Paul wrote 75% of the New Testament that we, that we look at today. So Paul and Jonah are both men that were selected by God to have this, have this great capacity of being the voice of God to humanity. Paul came after Jesus, Jonah came before Jesus, but they, all, they both kind of wrestled with the subject of God's grace. And they both wrestled with this mystery of God's grace that God would show grace to almost the worst kind of people that you could think. Jonah was wrestling with why would God show grace to Nineveh. Paul wrestled with why would God show grace to the Gentiles. Because back in the day when Paul ministered, after Jesus had come and, and was crucified on the cross, he had ascended back to heaven, and the gospel was just getting started, and the church was just getting started, the church was beginning to have arguments and debates on who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Is it for the Jews only, or is it for everybody? And many of the Jewish Christians said, no, it's just for us. Because they'd been steeped and marinated in this idea that we are God's chosen people. You know, they were children of the Abrahamic covenant, man. God made, a, God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, through you and through your seed, I'm going to bless all of the nations. You're going to be my chosen people. And they missed that second part of the covenant. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. You see, they, they still held up, like the attitude that Jonah had, that still held up in the days of Jesus and was also beginning to seep into the church in the days of Paul. Because now what they were saying is, yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. And really, he's got to be just for the Jewish people. This is how he's going to redeem us. This is how he's going to prop us up as his people to bless the nations. They're going to look at us, and they're going to be jealous of all we've got in God. And we're going to sit high and lift it up, and we're going to say, na 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 boo boo to everybody else. That's the way some of them looked at it. Others said, no, the gospel has to be for everybody. And Paul utters these words, and he writes these words in Scripture. says, God is, God is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior of all, first to the, Jew, first to the Jew and then also to the Gentile. And so some people are saying, okay, well, fine. If God said he's for the Gentiles too, we've got to be for the Gentiles as well, so let's let the gospel go to the Gentiles. But, but if they're going to be with us, they need to be like us. So even though they don't know anything about our feasts, even though they don't know anything about our culture and our ideas, they need to basically adopt our culture if they're going to accept our Savior. Does that sound familiar? This is what Paul was dealing with. And Paul begins speaking, and in the book of Romans, he writes this treatise on God's grace. And the thing about what Paul would do, Paul would always structure his letters and he would, he would structure his ideas in the form of, I'm going to teach you this doctrine. I'm going to teach you about what God thinks. And then he would shift gears and say, okay, now we know what God thinks. Now let's do what God expects us to do with what God thinks. He teaches doctrine and then he would shift to duty. So Paul and Jonah both wrestled with this idea, why would God show grace to people who we don't think deserve it? Jonah reacted poorly. Paul reacted in a really good way. So here's what we see right in chapter 11, at the very end of chapter 11. Paul has spent 11 chapters outlining and teaching the doctrine of the grace of God. And man, it is deep. It is deep. We could spend the rest of our lives in the book of Romans and probably never be able to get out of it. It is deep. And then he's going to shift into chapter 12 that says, therefore, and he's going to say, basically that word, little therefore, in chapter 12, verses number 1, says, because of all of verse number 11, or all of chapters 1 through 11, here's what we need to do. And then he spends 12 through the rest of the, the book saying, here's what we need to do because of that doctrine. But right before that, there's three little verses there. Three little verses, and that's where I want to spend our time this morning. So would you uh, stand with me this morning, if you are able? out of respect to this, this uh, man, this beautiful passage of Scripture. 
It says in Romans chapter 11 and in verse number 33, and I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. For who can know or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor or his advisor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. And that word ever there in the original language just means it just keeps going on for infinity. To him be the glory. Let's read out loud verse number 36 together again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Speak truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his precious word. This passage that we just read this morning is what's known as the doxology of the Apostle Paul, or Paul's doxology. Now, doxology is really just this fancy church word that means worship. All right, but not just worship like we think about. I'm going to come in and I'm going to sing to the. I'm going to sing along with the group and with the people in my church. And I, I may like the song so much that I lift my hands or I clap along or something like that. What he's talking about here, the doxology, the attitude that we read this passage with, is one of humble praise that is that he cannot even like he can't contain himself. Meaning, it's a humble reaction to the glory of God that has been made known to him. Paul has just spent 11 chapters reviewing the grace and the depths and the heights of God's grace. He spent 11 chapters writing about God's goodness. Now understand, Paul's life is one that is a billboard for God's grace. I mean, here was a bounty hunter that spent his life bringing Christians to what he thought was justice, because he thought that Christians were heretics, and he thought that the world would be better off if Christians were wiped off of the face of the earth. So he spent his time serving God by bringing Christians to their death. And then one day on the road to Damascus, Paul meets Jesus for the very first time. And Paul is immediately brought to a point where he is humbled in the presence of God. And he realized, I have been following the wrong grace. And he comes to faith in God and he immediately transform, transforms from being a bounty hunter that was set against Christians to being a church planting missionary that spent the rest of his life trying to build churches and build the body of Christ up. He had a total transformation because of the grace of God. This man was qualified not just because of being a well-educated man, but he was qualified because he had experienced this deep and high and wide and miraculous grace of God. And here's the thing, church, it's the same grace. If you're a child of God, it's the same grace you and I have experienced as well. So here's the reaction that Jonah should have had right? Oh, the depths. Oh, the love. Oh, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. To him be glory forever. That should have been Jonah's reaction too, sitting up on the hill looking down on Nineveh. I don't understand your grace, God, but man, it's awesome. So Paul gets it. Paul was a guy who said, I didn't deserve it, yet you showed it to me. The Gentiles don't deserve it, yet you show it to them. And to be honest, the Jews, we don't deserve it either, but yet he's shown it to us. And church, we don't deserve it, but he shows it to us. 
And so here's our reaction. This is what I want to call us to. And look at these three verses this morning and say, is this our heart's reaction to the grace of God? Or have we, in our piety, and in sometimes our tendency towards legalism, have we just gotten used to the grace of God? And have we even more sinfully gotten to the place where we think, I deserved it in the first place? This is not going to be one of those, man, pastor made me feel good messages today. This is one of those where I've prayed and begged God, God, just speak to us today. Put us in our place. Because our place before you is right. That's where we need to be. See, Jonah didn't trust what God knew what he was doing with grace. Think about that. Jonah basically told God, you don't know what you're doing with that, that thing you got called grace. You got this amazing tool and you're using it the wrong way. We've never done that to God, have we? We've never tried to tell God that he didn't know what he was doing, have we? We've never spent time in our prayer sessions saying, God, I know that you know better than I do, but if you just listen to my advice for a minute, if you just hear my case, we've never gotten angry at God for not handling something the way that we thought he should handle it, have we? We've never gotten bad news and thought, there cannot be a God because if there was a God, I wouldn't have just gotten the news that I got. We've never tried to convince God that he had to do something in one particular way because it was the only way that it could be done, right? We've never done that, right? We've never sat wringing our hands knowing that something is coming, saying, God, if it doesn't happen the way that I think it should, I just don't know if I want to live in a world like that. We've never done that, have we? See, Paul realized something that Jonah didn't, is that God's way is bigger than we can comprehend. Jonah could not get God out of his box. And here's the thing, all he saw through his life was a God that sat outside the box. A God that could bring a storm at a moment's notice. A God that could move a whale to swallow him and keep him alive for three days. A God that could bring revival to a city that was completely set against God. A God that could cause a shade tree to pop up when Jonah needed shade. Yet Jonah looked at him and said, man, God, just get in my box, man. You'd be so much easier to follow if you just got in your box and knew your place. And sadly, that's what I think our faith is reduced to many times. Get in your place, God. Because here's the thing. What we're always wrestling with is this God that I've put my faith in, who sent his son to die on the cross to give me eternal life, that I've placed my eternal faith and trust for salvation in, we continually wrestle as we follow him with this question, which is our sermon title this morning. Can I trust God? Can I trust him? We'll place our faith in him, but can we place our trust in him? What do we do when we don't exactly know what God is doing, right? What do we do when we don't know what God is doing? Because I can assure you this, God is doing something that is bigger than you and I can comprehend. Paul realized that, Jonah didn't. God was doing something bigger than Jonah when he gave grace to Nineveh. God was doing something bigger than Nineveh when he gave grace to them. God was doing something bigger than the nation of Israel when he showed grace to Nineveh. And today, he is still doing something bigger than we can comprehend ourselves today. He's doing something bigger than you and me. Now, here's the thing. I love being the pastor here at Graceway. I love you all. I think you're the greatest people in the world, mostly. But God's doing something bigger than us. I love this church, but God's doing something bigger than this church. God's doing something bigger than COVID-19. 
God is doing something bigger than an election on Tuesday. God is doing something bigger, while I'm on my rant, God of the heavens is doing something bigger than the United States of America. He's just doing something bigger than all of that. Yet what we spend most of our time, especially this year, we spent most of our time whining and fretting about what's going to happen to us if this happens, or if this guy gets elected, or if that guy gets elected. I don't care who sits in the White House, because my dad sits on the throne. I had a lot of candy this morning and an extra hour of sleep. By the way, this is the year, this was the year to get rid of time change. You wanna know why? Who in their right mind would vote for an extra year of 20, or an extra hour of 2020? Who in their right mind would do that? Right? Stacy brought that up, that wasn't me, that, was on, that one was Stacy's. God's doing a big thing, and it's bigger than anything that we can understand. Here's the thing, whatever big thing that God is doing, and I'm going to be the first one to tell you, I don't know it. I've tried to take the yarn and connect all of it and figure it all out and stuff, and you know what? I ran out of yarn. I don't know what God is doing, but I do know that I can trust him while he does it. And I think that's the thing we need to return to many times, and that's what our passage brings us to. God can be trusted, even when I don't know what he's doing. See, we've been through, and we're still smack dab in the middle of going through a very rough and chaotic and trying season in our history. And we're tempted to say, God, what are you doing? We're tempted to say, when is God going to do something about it? We're tempted to say, maybe God's not all the Bible says that he's cracked up to be, because if he was, we'd be past this. I wouldn't still be wearing a mask. Or maybe you've taken Jonah's route, and you're like, I don't know if I can follow a God anymore if he's going to work like this. And there's a lot of people that are there today going through this process that we call deconstruction of faith. To you, can I just say this? And if that's you this morning, you tuned in or you're sitting here this morning, can I just say this from the bottom of my heart? The good news is that God is bigger than your doubts. He's bigger than your questions. And he's big enough to handle you not understanding him. He doesn't ask us to understand him. He asks us to trust him. See, because if God, this is a good thing that we don't understand him. Because if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. And that's exactly what Paul has done here. It's like, God, I can't figure your grace out, so all I can do is just worship you. Because you're God and I'm not. I don't know what God's doing right now with COVID. I don't know what he's doing in our social climate. I don't know who's going to win the election on Tuesday. But what I do know is that God already knows and he's doing something through all of it. And the best thing I can do is trust him because what we do need is a God-centered perspective of life. Shift our perspective back to God. The thing, there's this old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. When we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we keep our eyes fixed on God, all the other stuff begins to go into its proper perspective and it fades in the light of God's glory. So on a Sunday, when I would suspect, and by looking at Facebook and the news and everything, on a Sunday, when an entire nation is just sitting there, frozen, wringing its hands, waiting on an answer that's going to be given on Tuesday or maybe a couple weeks later, when everything is finally counted, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ should be standing with hands raised, not ringing, in confident worship of the King of Kings, who always was and always is and is one day returning to set his kingdom right. 
He is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega, as it says in the last verse of our text, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So here's the big idea today, is that God can be trusted because he knows what he's doing and because his ways are higher than ours. So I've, I already knew that, but are we living like that? God can be trusted because he knows what he's doing and his ways are higher than ours. So I want to give you a few things that we need to do that Paul did here that Jonah didn't do in our last series that remind us that he can be trusted. Number one is that we need to really do the best we can to take in the magnitude of God's greatness. Just be, and I can trust you, trust me on this. When you begin to take in the magnitude of God's grace, it's, in God's greatness, it's going to fill you up. You're not going to be able to handle all of it. And that's by design. We are not meant to figure God all the way out. I love what he says in verse number 33 again. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how untraceable are his ways. This verse is filled with a lot of theologically packed words, but the best and most powerful word is the very first one when he just says, oh, because it's his reaction to the greatness of God. You and I are on different levels of discipleship. Everyone in here, we're on different steps in our journey with God, but every one of us can be at this place that Paul is at of just, oh, of absolute worship and amazement as you, become to, as you come to know the goodness and the glory and the nature of God because it's the cry of a heart that is full of God. It's a cry of a heart that is enraptured by who God is. Paul has spent 11 chapters just writing a thesis on the grace of God, and he has to just stop and before he gets to what I need to do about it, how I'm supposed to act, he says, what I need to do is just offer thanks to God right now. What I need to do is just admit that he is God and I am not. And what's to follow in how I act in light of God's grace, I can't do without God. Because God is, number one, he's too big to figure out, or he's too deep to figure out. He says, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God in verse number 33. So here, Paul uses this word picture to kind of paint an idea or help, to help us to understand the nature of God's grace, the nature of God's greatness. And he says, he is deep. And when he says deep there in the original language, it's this word picture of an abyss that knows no end. So think about the ocean today. Did you know that we have been able to see through telescopes light years out there to see stars and galaxies that are light years away, but we have yet to, we have yet to completely scour the bottom of the ocean floor? That there are pieces of the ocean that we have yet to explore. There are pieces of the ocean that we have yet to find because it's so deep. God is so deep that scholars for centuries have dived into God's grace, into God's nature, into the idea of God, and they have never reached the bottom. And here's why. Because we can't handle it. Have you ever, how many of you have ever gone diving before? Like scuba diving? Snorkeling? How many of you have been in a pool? Okay, great. All right, now I know what we're dealing with. I've never, do I've never been diving either or anything like that. But science tells us there are, there are limits to our human bodies, that water pressure begins to build so much that humans cannot go down without protection or submarines and stuff like that. This is why no human being has, able, has ever been able to dive to the Titanic because it just sits at a place that's too low for humans to be able to handle the pressure. This is kind of the picture that we get. This is the idea of what Paul is talking about when he says that, God's, that, that, that his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his wisdom and all of those things are too deep. It means that we all get to a point where we can't go any further, that God's grace goes beyond our comprehension. 
that God's goodness and his glory and his magnitude go beyond our comprehension. And he says that a few things are deep. Number one, his riches are deep. It means that, and we see that word, his riches are deep. It doesn't just mean I got a lot of money that I can throw around. When he says that God has deep riches, it means that he is completely and totally independent. He is completely and totally self-sufficient without need of any help whatsoever. Now, there's a lot of people in this world that we would say is rich, right? Bill Gates. Would anybody like Bill Gates' bank account? Bill Gates is pretty rich, right? There have been a lot of people in history who were rich. Solomon was probably rich beyond his wildest imaginations. There have been a lot of rich people in the world. But none of them were rich like God. Why? Because every rich and wealthy person that has ever lived have always depended on someone in some way for that wealth. A business owner who owns all kinds of businesses depends upon his employees or her employees to provide that wealth. He can't go out and, they can't go out and do it on their own, you see. We all depend on something for the riches that we have. Even Solomon, the riches that he had was because he asked God for those. He asked God for wisdom, and God says, I'm going to give you all of it. I'm going to give you so much other things. They're some of the richest people in the world who have been also the most generous of people. Business owner J.C. Penney, back in the early days of the, of the 20th century, he was famously known for having been, uh, by the end of his life, he was so wealthy that he tithed 90% of his income and kept 10%. And we say, man, that is one gracious kind of guy. It is. But here's the thing about all the wealthiest people and all the most generous people in the world. They don't spend all their riches on the benefit of others. But God did. God has exhausted his riches for the benefit of other people because God doesn't need the riches. He's self-sufficient on his own. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 2. It says, do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint, and his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Don't despise the riches of God. Romans chapter 10 says, God is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It would have been nice if Jonah had known this when he was sitting on the hill in Nineveh. God will show grace to all who call on him. And my God, Philippians 4.19 says, will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is rich, and he uses all of his riches for our benefit. And as he does that, he gets glory for it. See, his riches are deep. His wisdom also is deep. And wisdom is best understood in the context of its relationship with knowledge as well. See, God, Paul says he not only has wisdom, but he also has knowledge too. So God has both of these things, and they're both deep. But wisdom is best seen in its context with knowledge. See, knowledge is what I know up here, but wisdom is what I do with what I know. Wisdom is applied knowledge. And here's the thing, it does, it does no good to know everything about God, but it never get into your heart and bring you to a place where you react to it and respond to it. And this is the dangerous statement that is oftentimes true. The distance for a lot of people between heaven and hell is about 18 inches. Because they get it up here, they know Jesus died on the cross, they've heard enough sermons about it, but they've never come to a place where they invite Jesus here. And until Jesus gets here, until we receive him as Savior and Lord of our lives, we can't say that we are redeemed by the grace of God. Knowing about the grace of God does not mean I've accepted the grace of God. We learn that through Nineveh. 
God wanted to show grace to Nineveh, but what did he say? You have to receive it. You have to turn. If Nineveh had not turned, destruction would have come. Paul, Paul knew about the grace of God. He'd heard the message, but he still hadn't received it until he met Jesus. His wisdom is deep. Spiritual knowledge may come in a lot of books and Bible studies, but wisdom only comes by asking it of God. Here's what the, here's what the book of James says. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, then he should simply ask it of God because he gives it to all generously and he's not ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. Wisdom is only a prayer away. God loves to give it out, but we have to ask for it. God is also too high for us to figure out. Not only is he deep, he's got wisdom and knowledge and they're deep, but he is also too high for us to figure out as well. He says in the latter part of verse number 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how untraceable are his ways. So we've gone to the depths, to the, as far as we can go, but now Paul says, oh yeah, he's not just deep, he's high as well. And to the ancient reader, with the, uh, to the ancient reader back then, he reads this in a different way than we do. When we think about the heights, we think about like space and beyond anything that we can comprehend. What he's basically saying here is, it is so high that I cannot see it. I cannot see it, but I know it's out there. See, even the ancients back then knew that the heavens were vast. They understood that there's things that I just can't see. There's things that are untraceable, and that's what he means when he says his ways are untraceable. His judgments are unsearchable, and his ways are untraceable. Not only is God infinitely deep, unattainable to human reaching, but he is also transcendently high as well. Here's what Isaiah said in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55. He says, for my thoughts, he's speaking for God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is the Lord's declaration for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Translation, God is bigger than we can figure out. God is higher than we can figure out. And he is working on a plane. He's working on the same plane that we exist on, but at the same time, he's working on a plane that we can't figure out and we can't understand. God's doing things that we don't always understand and we can't see, but he's still doing them. And it's greater than we can fathom. And here's what we know. Here's what God has told us about this. He's doing it for his glory and for our good. And many times what God is doing that we can't see and we don't understand, we're going, man, what's going on? And we're wondering, we're wondering, we're worrying, can I trust God? And he's saying, you can trust me because what I'm doing is for my glory and for your good. Just trust me in the process. Trust me. Trust me. His judgments are unsearchable, it says. This is why God's judgments are unsearchable. This is why we can't understand them sometimes. That word judgments there in the original language is like a, it's a, it's a term that they used in the legal system. It was like a judicial term. It's used to refer to the condemnation and the punishment of sin. But in this context, it's used in a broader sense to refer to his decrees and to his decisions. You see, back in the ancient days, they didn't have government set up kind of like what we do. It was basically the king, you know, and he was like not only the king and the lawmaker, but he was also the judge as well. So like in the Old Testament, when you see that people came to Solomon and he had to hear all the cases and stuff like that, and he had to make wise decisions on that. That's why he asked for, for wisdom. What this is saying is that for the human kings of the earth, they struggled a lot of time to not only make the laws, but then enforce the laws and judge over the laws. But God doesn't have a problem with that. Because God is infinitely wise and his judgments are unsearchable, meaning they know no limits. They know no limits. 
We've heard a lot of discussion in the past several weeks about judges here in our country, right? With the death of, of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a historical Supreme Court Justice. And the replacement just a week ago, the contentious replacement of Amy Coney Barrett to hold her seat now. We've heard a lot about justices, and we pray that our justices will be wise, and they will, they will, kind of, uh, they will, they will translate the law for our good, right? For the good of the American people. But here's what we know about God. God is not someone who has to translate the law because he is the law. God's ways are untraceable. He says in Isaiah 40, Do you not know or have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never becomes faint. He never becomes weary. There is no limit to his understanding. This means when I'm at the, when I'm at the limit of my understanding and when I'm about to give up, God's just getting started. God's just getting started. When I'm at my wit's end and I don't know what to do, God is right there saying, man, I can carry you miles because I know. We're limited in our ability to judge because we're limited in our understanding, but God doesn't have this limitation. God is unlimited. He is infinite in his depth. He is infinite in his height. His judgments refers to his decisions and his ways refer to God's activity. So not only are his judgments unsearchable, his ways are untraceable. It means that God refers to God's activities and his actions. His ways are the path or the road that he travels to accomplish his judgments. And here we see that his ways are untraceable. What that means is sometimes you can see the effects of God, but you can't track his footprints. And for us living in the here and now, that's probably where we're at. We can't always track his footprints. Now, for those of you who have that, that plaque of that footprints poem on your, on your wall at home, you're thinking, I can't track his footprints, but that's what the whole poem is based on. I'm not saying go home and take that down, but his ways are untraceable, meaning he's doing things that we don't even have the foggiest idea that he's doing right now. And this is the struggle of faith. What I can't see, I'm still going to trust him for. What I can't see, I'm still going to trust him for. This means that God is doing so much more than we can see or give him credit for right now that he's active in things that we would never assume that he's active in. We would never assume he's active in it. Here are the, what are the things that you have a hard time understanding what God, that God could ever have a part in that? A lot of times the stuff that we look at, we say, man, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem good. That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like God would ever be near that. But here's what the Bible says. God makes beauty from ashes. So while he may not have brought the ashes, he redeems the ashes. God is working in things that we won't even give him credit for working in, or we're afraid to say he might be working in. He's working in it. The wondrous knowledge, the book of Psalms says, is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Our gracious God gives more than enough truth to know him, to trust him, and to serve him. But no matter how diligently we may have studied his word, we have to confess like David in the Psalms. It's too lofty and I can't understand it. There's a whole host of things that we're never going to figure out. Theologically, I don't think we're ever going to figure out election versus free will. I don't think we'll ever figure out sovereignty versus responsibility. Some of you are saying, what are you even talking about? Don't even go down that rabbit hole. You're better off. Why things happen the way they do. Why are dogs so much better than cats? There's just some things that we're not going to be able to figure out this side of heaven. And we could spend the rest of our time studying and pondering and debating. Some things we'll never be able to reconcile because our brains are too limited. Don't get so sidetracked by trying to understand God that you forget to worship him. 
You can spend your whole life wringing your hands over what you don't understand about him, or you could be spending your life lifting your hands in praise and thanks for the things you do. So note the magnitude of God's greatness. Now, for some of you that are looking at the notes on the digital bulletin, you're, you're noting the magnitude of the outline, and you're thinking, he's just through point one. This is a two-part message, so just breathe easy, breathe easy. So we're going to move towards our invitation this morning, okay? So I'm going to have Hannah, if you would, would you go ahead and come on up, and we get ready to move towards this invitation. Why did Jonah struggle so much with what God's decision of, with God's decision of grace? It's because he forgot that God's in control. He forgot that God can be trusted. He forgot that God is so great that he is so deep and he is so wide and he is so high that I can't fathom sometimes what he's doing. And what I don't understand, it doesn't mean that I get mad at him. It means that I trust him. And when I don't have the faith to trust him, I fall on my knees and I ask God, give me the faith. Give me the faith to take the next step and the next step and the next step. Because I promise you, when you take a step in his will, he's right there. He's right there. So Paul, after writing about all of this grace, he's like, God is awesome. And he pins down these words. And we only looked at, ver at the first verse of this text today. First verse of this text. There's more to come. We'll cover the rest of it next week. But I want to call your attention to verse number one of chapter 12. What's my response? Because every time we hear the word, what we want to ask is, what's my response? How do I respond to what I've heard today? If you're wrestling with this question, can God be trusted? If you're wondering what's going to happen with COVID, what's going to happen with my neighbor's cancer, what's going to happen if the person I voted for doesn't get elected, what's going to happen if all the doomsdayers are right, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen is God's still going to be in control. And you're still going to be his child. So with the faith that you trusted him for your eternity, trust him for your day. And trust him for your life. Because he's good. The same God who's good enough to save you when you didn't deserve it is, still, is good enough to carry you through this world. If you haven't trusted him, then trust him. And here's what it says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age. What that means is, don't let the world press in on you and shape you and manage your thoughts and manage your actions because all it's going to do is press in until it crushes you. He says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So as we come today to the end of this, well, to the middle of this message, to a stopping point, I want to ask you three questions. These are three responses. The first one is this. Have I trusted in this great and mighty and merciful God? Have I trusted him as my Savior? If you have not, let today be the day of salvation. If you're watching right now, come to Jesus. The Bible says all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And he calls to us, come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The way we come to Jesus is to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, just like Nineveh did in Jonah, just like, just like Paul did when he was in Damascus. Realize that we're sinners and we fall short of God's glory, and then we fall upon him and say, God, I'm trusting you as my Savior. 
If you don't know him today, let today be the day that you're saved. Talk to somebody before you leave. Comment in the section there today or send us an email so that we can talk to you about knowing Christ as your Savior. If you haven't trusted him with your whole life, maybe you've trusted him with eternity, but you're saying, man, I'm having a hard time trusting him with life, just go ahead and place it in his hand today. What's it going to hurt, man? Because how well is life going right now without him? And if you're questioning what he's doing right now, then worship him for what he has done. And I can assure you, when you begin to review what he's done, he will never let you down. So as we stand this morning and we get ready to respond to what God's word says, I'm not going to try to manipulate you or coax you. This is between us and God, honestly. So if God's spoken to your heart today and you need to respond to that, then speak to him today. You can come to this altar. You can do it right where you're at. You can talk to someone at the back, whatever. Let's respond to what God has to say. Holy Spirit, move in this place now. This time is yours. Move in us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, if you need to come and pray, you need to pray with someone, whatever, please do so today. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.